the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition to the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. The countdown is on. The Y2K of 2017 is approaching the eclipse. Do you have special plans, Clark? Or are you just going to be here working? Yeah, pretty much. Me too. No glasses, no nothing. I'll maybe you have glasses. You're, will you go outside? Maybe I should get glasses and go outside with you. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, we'll have to figure that out. Today we're going to talk with Dee Breston. She is the author most recently of He Calls You Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus and the Song of Songs. Uh, looking forward to that. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Adam Michelle. Uh, we're going to talk about the renegotiation of terms, if you will, uh, for a tax reform package that members of Congress say on the GOP side, say that they uh, want to present once the August recess has come to a close. We're also going to talk with uh, Laura Keel. She's a new advertiser here on KPDQ, and she's offering an opportunity for folks who have a curiosity and interest in and may benefit by the reverse mortgage. They're holding a, a, a seminar that's coming up this Saturday at one o'clock in Jansen Beach. We'll give you all the important details. You can also go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or kpdq.com. Look for the Georgine Rice Show and the link to their website and details can be found there as well. So there you have it. Well, of course, today's top news story comes out of Barcelona, Spain, where a terror attack uh, left at least 13 dead after a van plowed into a crowd. Two suspects were arrested, but they are still looking for a primary suspect. Police are on the hunt for the driver of that van that rammed through a crowded tourist area in Barcelona today, killing 13 people, wounding more than 100 others in what investigators called an act of terror. At least two people have been arrested uh, as the as suspects in the attack, apparently related in some way, according to the regional president of the, uh, the region. One of the suspects is a Spanish national, and the other is Moroccan citizen who lived in Spain legally. ISIS claimed responsibility for the terror attack earlier today through its propaganda arm, according to Site Intel Group. The perpetrators of the attack uh, in hashtag Barcelona are Islamic State soldiers and carried out the operation on command of ISIS leader. Uh, leaders, rather, of targeting coalition countries, the ISIS release stated. Now, senior police officials said the van attacks is attack rather is connected to a gas explosion inside a house in the tan, uh, town rather of Alconcar Wednesday, in which one person was killed and seven were injured. Police initially named Driss Alkabar of uh, Morocco. Uh, as a suspect in that attack. However, local uh, media are reporting a man with that name told police that his identification documents were stolen, possibly by his younger brother. So there's some question as to who the perpetrator actually is. Um, uh, uh, Alkbar, he rented the van that was used in the attack, according to 
uh, sources there. A government official has confirmed that uh, intelligence agencies are now combing through their uh, holdings, including terror watch lists, to determine if this individual was known to the FBI, DHS, and other agencies. Officials are also working to determine if the suspect was uh, blocked from entering the U.S. or if he was radicalized uh, individual that was not on government radar. Well, the, uh, uh, the white van jumped onto a sidewalk, sped through a pedestrian zone, uh, in the area of Barcelona, the famous main pedestrian walkway that crosses the city. The van swerved from side to side as it plowed through and into tourists and residents, attempting to um, create as much damage as possible. A senior police official said today the attack was clearly a terror attack and was intended to kill as many people as possible. State-owned broadcaster RTVE reported that investigators think two vans were used, one for the attack and a second as a getaway vehicle. Police uh, killed a gunman in the shootout a few miles uh, from the Barcelona area soon after the crash, El Mundo newspaper reported. However, police said later the gunman was not linked to the terror attack. So there's a lot of fluidity in terms of uh, confirming what actually happened and who's connected. Local media originally reported two men involved in the attack had been uh, holed up in a bar, but that was dispelled. Uh, uh, An official there said that three days of mourning have been declared in the city following the attack. The prime minister of Spain uh, tweeted that he is uh, going to that area uh, to uh, survey the damage and to mourn with the people there. We'll continue to follow uh, more details as they are confirmed moving forward. Well, the first suspect that's been identified is linked to the Barcelona terror attack is a Moroccan citizen who lived in Spain legally. Uh, Driss Akbar was uh, assisted by police in Spain as a suspect uh, in the attack. Uh, the suspect, born in 1989, was a resident of Ripoli and has been uh, uh, the the one to rent the van that was used in the attack with the vehicle, according to investigators, adding that the rental agency had located about 40 miles, or rather was located about 40 miles from Barcelona. Police announced on Twitter that they had arrested one suspect, were treating him as a terrorist. Authorities reportedly said that they found Spanish passport inside the van, uh, but he had an identification number of uh, foreigners, according to El Paris. Uh, a van plowed into the crowd, killing at least 13. Others are in very serious condition, so they think the death toll certainly could uh, rise. And again, they suspect there's a second van linked to the attack in uh, Barcelona today. Police had cordoned off the area. We're inspecting the vehicle, the city council said. Another van earlier mowed down the crowds, and that, too, uh, has been uh, is being held by law enforcement. Spanish media early reported that that second van had been rented as a getaway car by attackers, and that is a theory that's still being considered. Well, the Oregon State men's basketball team narrowly missed being victims to that terror attack in Barcelona today. A white van mounted the uh, sidewalk and struck people in the uh, uh, in the district they were staying. According to the head coach, Wayne Tinkle, the attack happened in front of the hotel where the team was staying. Players and coaches were in the hotel restaurant having a pregame meal. Literally looking out our window, he said, some horrific sights, several fatalities with an eyesight of our hotel room, he said in a video posted on Twitter. The school issued a statement saying the Oregon State men's basketball team's traveling party is reported to be safe Thursday following an incident in Barcelona, Spain. The incident occurred near the hotel where the team is staying, at least in part, directly 
outside the hotel. The Beavers are touring Spain through the 25th of this month, playing five exhibition games. OSU officials uh, are determining the remaining schedule. Updates on the team's schedule will be, uh, will be provided when available. The Oregon State University community extends its uh, thoughts and prayers to all those injured and affected by the incident. The school spokesman Steve Clark told the Corvallis Gazette Times that players and the entourage witnessed the attack. As a result, members of the team are very saddened, very upset by what has occurred. He said it was has affected them in a very profound way. Well, the Beavers were scheduled to play five games during this trip. There are there is a nine-hour time difference from Corvallis to Spain. The Thursday game has been canceled, but they're scheduled to play on Saturday, again on uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And again, they're reviewing whether or not the team will remain in Spain or whether or not they will move forward with those uh, with those scheduled games. Bucks Sexton says that uh, low-tech attacks using vehicles are very hard to prevent. Uh, he is a former CIA counterterrorism analyst and ICE, and said, rather, ISIS favors these types of attacks for that reason, directing sympathizers by remote control. He explained that in cases like this, ISIS-inspired terrorists were found to have received key information from others to help them carry out an attack. It's very difficult to prevent a low-tech attack like this, which has, uh, uh, can also be a mass casualty low-tech attack. At least two people have been killed, 20 uh, injured. That number has since been raised. When a vehicle hit the crowd, the van struck pedestrians, uh, the driver fled the scene, and the analysis is continuing as to what precisely um, happened. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. About 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You live in listening, rather, to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dee Breston. Her book is titled, He Calls You Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs. Well, in one of the biggest 2018 premium hikes sought to date, Iowa's only Obamacare insurer is looking for a 57% rate increase. That's 13% more than they asked for two months earlier, by the way. It's a troubling trend that's been spreading across the country as jittery insurers stay stuck in a holding pattern waiting on Congress and the Trump administration to decide the fate of the Affordable Care Act. President Trump has uh, uh, at different times encouraged lawmakers to let Obamacare implode, pushed his party to repeal and replace the bill, admonished his own party for failing to do so and supported a repeal only bill. One of the president's biggest complaints about the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, has been the trend of rising premiums in the insurance exchanges. But insurers have only accelerated that push in the face of Trump's threats to cut off billions in federal funding. That was meant to keep the co-pays and deductibles down. In fact, he announced today that he'll um, insure that payment through this month. But then what? That's coupled with the congressional deadlock and market uncertainty over the repeal of Obamacare. Well, in June, Iowa's Medica Uh, They sent a letter to its customers explaining it uh, was seeking a 43.5% rate hike. That would affect about 14,000 Iowans. Well, the the company spelled out the uh, steep premium increases, but offered customers assurances that federal subsidies would shield most of them from forking over thousands more a year. Well, since then, Medica has revised the proposed hike to 57%, citing once again uncertainties over federal health care subsidies. We remain hopeful the federal government will fund the cost-sharing reductions, but we are working with the Iowa Insurance Division to help consumers understand the implications of a lack of this fund. Jeff Barch, who's the Medica Vice President of Individual and Family Business, said in a statement, We regret the disruption this creates for consumers, and a disruption it is. 
until decisions are ultimately made. Well, it's time to put the uh, screws to Republican lawmakers who promised to repeal Obamacare, one House member says. And that's why he supports reviving a successful 2015 attempt to get rid of the health care law. We certainly can't give up. That's a quote from Representative Matt Getz uh, out of Florida. He said in a phone interview with The Daily Signal, he was explaining why he decided to back a small caucus of House conservatives and its strategy to force a floor vote on a bill mirroring the Obamacare repeal passed in December of 2015. Well, the House Freedom Caucus announced on Friday its plan to collect the 20, 218 signatures required on a discharge petition to pull that legislation out of committee. Uh, it's uh, the eight House members um, uh, say that they stand on uh, on the, uh, the strategy. I signed this dis- uh, <laughs> I signed the discharge petition because the things we have done so far uh, to appease moderates in our party haven't worked. Get says he's not a member of the Freedom Caucus, uh, so maybe we should uh, take a conservative approach going forward. We certainly can't give up and. Uh, many are wondering whether or not that approach will work, given what uh, we've already witnessed in the first, what, six months. It hasn't uh, worked quite as well as they had hoped. Well, in the looming shadow of another debt limit debate, Congress should stand firm and demand spend, uh, spending controls before increasing the debt limit again. Well, like the iceberg that sank the uh, grand ship, the Titanic, the United States is facing what it perhaps uh, is uh, the largest and most avoidable crisis in its history, the U.S. federal Debt. Well, Justin Boggy, writing uh, for the Daily Signal, points out that the federal debt is $20 trillion and growing at an unsustainable rate. The federal debt is projected to increase from $20 trillion to $92 trillion in the next 30 years. Uh, debt uh, will more than quadruple. Between today and 2047, the only areas of spending expected to increase as a percentage of gross domestic product are Social Security, major health care programs, and the interest on the debt. Now, these are the drivers of the national debt. All other spending is projected to decline as a percentage of GDP. Entitlement spending is the problem. Well, these projections assume no wars, no terrorist attacks, no recessions, and historically low interest rates. Probably not uh, likely that all of those will remain intact. It would put further strain on the budget and likely accelerate the growth of the debt if any one or combination of them were to uh, to happen. So why isn't Congress taking the federal debt seriously? Well, they blame uh, the uh, the fails on a lack of motivation, says uh, David Barnes, a policy director at uh, Generation Opportunity. I think it's a lack of incentives for policymakers that they prioritize short term thinking over long term thinking. Well, it's not just uh, the lack of incentives. It's, you know, their bid to be reelected. They prefer to get something today and put off a tough decision until later. Well, that's partly human nature, but it certainly is not the kind of statesmanship that many of us would like to see. Let's put it into perspective. A child born in 2017 is going to have 44,841 share, uh, dollar share, by the way, of America's publicly held federal debt. That's pretty staggering if you have children or grandchildren. The consequence of Washington's excessive spending will manifest in several ways. Uh, such a massive federal debt stifles economic growth. Higher interest rates would raise the cost of the debt. 
Uh, it would lead government to either tax more or borrow even more. That's a formula for disaster. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, a large amount of the federal debt will also restrict the government's ability to use tax and spending policies to respond to unforeseen circumstances. And these unexpected challenges could have a much larger negative impact as well, would increase levels of the federal debt, threaten national security, and much more. Well, the good news is all of this can be avoided. The question is whether or not they will by taking responsible action. Younger generations are going to bear the brunt of the consequence of uh, in the future of this um, uh, damage being done today. Uh, and uh, it, it threatens to be more ominous than ever uh, once it's uh, once it's too late. So we'll see what what happens. They're talking about doing a lot of things. Talking about it is one thing, actually accomplishing that. I have no doubt that they intend to, but pulling it off uh, is much harder work than um, than many might have been anticipated. Well, Hillary Clinton's book, um, uh, the book release has some Democrats worried and, quite frankly, a little irritated. They're on the edge over her forthcoming book that's likely to dredge up the controversy surrounding her 2016 defeat to President Trump, just as the out-of-power party is trying to move on and chart a course back to the majority. Well, the former Secretary of State, U.S. Senator and First Lady who added Democratic presidential nominee to her resume last year, apparently isn't done with public life. She plans to release her book, What Happened, next month and reportedly will focus the uh, memoir in part on the role that Moscow's meddling in former FBI Director Comey's public statements about her email investigation played in her defeat. I'm not sure many people want to hear or read about that at this time, but uh, Bloomberg reports that Democrats are privately concerned that Clinton's book will help Trump by fueling his case that Democrats are going after him because they're bitter. Well, the feeling in the party was captured by Senator Al Franken's comment in June that she and the party have to move on from her shock loss. Other prominent Democrats also have needled Clinton for her post-defeat comments. In an interview last month, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer suggested it's time to look forward. When you lose to somebody who has a 40% popularity, you don't blame other things. Comey, Russia, you blame yourself, Schumer told the Washington Post. So what did we do wrong? People didn't uh, know what we stood for. Uh, just that we were against Trump and we st- and uh, still believe that. Well, Democrats, including Schumer, have tried to rebrand the party under a new slogan, a better deal, looking ahead to the 2018 midterm elections. Former Vice President Biden has also criticized Clinton's uh, candidacy in recent months, questioning whether Democrats are paying enough attention to blue-collar economic issues. Clinton's public standing may have uh, something to do with the concern. A Bloomberg uh, poll back in July uh, showed she remains deeply unpopular, even more so than Trump, who has historically low approval ratings. The poll showed 58 percent viewed her unfavorably. Russian President Vladimir Putin had only slightly worse ratings. Bloomberg reported that Democrats would much prefer that approach Uh, The approach taken by 2000 presidential nominee Al Gore, who launched into climate change advocacy work and more after uh, he uh, contested the win of George W. Bush and his loss. Well, the Hill reported last month that Clinton has told friends she wants the whole story out there about the 2016 election rather for her new book or rather from her new book. The report suggested Clinton would return to hammering allegations Russia was involved in the hack of emails from the DNC and Democratic officials, including her campaign chairman, as well as the election impact of Comey's late stage decision to briefly reopen the email case. She really believes that's why she lost and she wants to explain why in no uncertain terms an individual identified as a long term ally told 
the Hill. So Hillary Clinton is back. Now, finally, Imran Awan, the former IT aide for the Democratic Florida Representative Debbie uh, Washerman Schultz was indicted today on four counts, including bank fraud and making false statements. The indictment also includes his wife, who is in uh, their their home country of Pakistan. That story is developing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Dee Breston will join me in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as children, we happily sing the familiar song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. It's a simple truth that spoke to our hearts with peace and security. But then the troubles of life start, and they drown out that sweet melody, that humble song. Jesus' love seems like less of a guarantee. Well, and he calls you beautiful, hearing the voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs. Best-selling author and Bible teacher Dee Breston examines a different love song, the book that for centuries was the most preached-on book in the Old Testament, but now it's widely neglected. That's the Song of Songs. Well, cap- the, the book captures the reader's senses through prose and imagery, and on the surface it details the rapturous love between a bridegroom and his bride, but my next guest points out expertly uh, that it, there's a deeper meaning as a love, a true love song from God to his beloved. We are reminded once again that our God is mindful of us and loves us. It's the promise of this divine yet undeserved love that many readers often miss. And uh, my guest, she explains how both men and women, whether married or single or widowed, can begin to receive and walk in the profound truth of Christ's love. Well, Dee Breston is the best-selling author of numerous books, including The Friendships of Women, which has sold over a million copies. She's involved in prison ministries and maintains a weekly Bible study blog through her website, dbreston.com. She's a popular speaker all around the country. She has five grown children, 13 grandchildren. She lives in Door County, Wisconsin, and joins us today by phone to talk about her book, He Calls You Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Now this, uh, as you pointed out, um, the the book of the Song of Songs was once one of the more popular books taught from in the Old Testament. It's often neglected today. Um, what brought this book to your uh, your thinking in terms of writing about the love of God for his people uh, at this time? Well, that's a good question. You know, I've always been fascinated by the poetry sections in the Bible. And as a young Christian, I did look at it just as a way of of enhancing marriage and um, showing the beauty of the marriage bed. But uh, I have seen so much more in the last decade or so. There is a return to seeing both pictures in the song. Before the uh, 1800s, they just saw Christ, and sometimes they went to great lengths to spiritualize things, saying her breasts, for example, were the Old and New Testament, and um, just far-fetched things. But today we've kind of gone to the other end of the pendulum where it is we are so sexualized that everything in the song is sexualized. But there's a fresh wind blowing that I love that says that the whole Bible is one great story of a great prince who left everything to come and rescue his bride. And every book in the Bible needs to fit into that in some way. 
And the Song of Songs certainly does because um, it is a picture of how Jesus rejoices over us like a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. And, and that penetrates my heart. It's, it's wonderful to learn lessons about marriage, but how much more exciting to think that he loves us like this. It's, it's almost too good to believe that it has really impacted my heart. One of your first chapters, you address the question, why did God put a love story in the heart of his word? And as you pointed out, it's been interpreted in many different ways. But why is this important that it's dropped into the the middle of the Old Testament um, in a sort of a surprising way? Uh, Why do you think that's that's the case? Well, I think that it is one thing to have head knowledge, and it is quite another thing to experience it. It's like Jonathan Edwards said, it's one thing to have an intellectual knowledge that honey is sweet. It is quite another to taste honey. And because the song is poetry, it penetrates the heart with one picture after another parading and penetrating our hearts. And there's so many beautiful poetic pictures in it. Um, One of my favorites is that he is compared to a deer in that he is leaping over the mountains, coming to her. And St. John of the Cross said that's an apt comparison because deer hide, and so often we feel like God is hiding. But then they leap out and surprise us. And St. John of the Cross says God hides to test and to try us, but then he leaps out to encourage us. And I've experienced both. And I just love those word pictures, and there's so many of them in the song. She is compared to a lukewarm bride after the wedding, and often we do get lukewarm. And um, yet he keeps knocking and waiting, very much like the scene in Revelation where he stands at the door and knocks at the door of the lukewarm bride of Laodicea. And he is patient with us. We are passionate and then we are apathetic, but he is ever steadfast and faithful. Now, the title of the book is He Calls You Beautiful, and I would imagine that, at least for some of your readers, it's difficult to imagine that any would, anyone would say that of them. What does it mean um, when he calls us beautiful? Um, we live in a culture that is steeped in uh, a, a, an overarching uh, focus on one's outward appearance. What does it mean when he calls you beautiful? I think it's a picture of the gospel. She says, I am dark but lovely. In other words, she understands the depravity of her heart, and yet she knows she is lovely to him. And we are, we are dark because we have our sin nature, but we are washed in the blood of Christ, and we are made lovely. And when he looks at us, he actually sees us as beautiful. And, and that's so wonderful. It's something I have a prison ministry, and the reason that I titled this book this way is because when I went into prison and spoke about the Song of Songs, I had such an experience that I knew even at that moment that the title of the book had to be He Calls You Beautiful. I was teaching and saying this is, this is a love story. It's an earthly love story, but it is also a picture of the way Christ rejoices over us. I said, she is ashamed when the king first comes riding in and says, don't even gaze at me because I'm dark. The sun has looked upon me and I'm dark. And he says to her, no, you are beautiful. 
there is no flaw in you. And and one of the women in the prison began to just sob to me, and and I finally asked her to explain what was going on. And she said, all of my life, I wanted someone to tell me that I was beautiful. For whatever reason, my mother never could. But I thought, when I get old enough, I'll get men to tell me I'm beautiful, and I will do whatever if they will just tell me I'm beautiful. And she said, and that's what got me in here. She said, but then this ministry told me about Jesus, and I became one of his children. And she said, this morning, I was walking along the track that we have inside this prison, And I said, Lord, you are so beautiful. And I thought he said, Julia, you are beautiful. And I stopped and I said, say it again. But he was silent. And she said, then you come in here tonight and you open the Bible and you say, in the heart of his word is a love story. And he keeps telling us again and again, you are beautiful, my love. She said, he said it again. And oh my goodness, I said, Julia, you've just been kissed by the king, which is another picture in the Mm. Song of Songs. In fact, we'd all been kissed at that moment because God met her so personally. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're talking with Dee Breston. She's a best-selling author of The Friendships of Women. Her latest book, He Calls You Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after five o'clock, 4 o'clock, rather, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about he, the book, He Called You Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus in the Song of Songs. Dee Breston is my guest. She's the best-selling author of The Friendships of Women. Now, in the book, you uh, intend for this to be very practical. So you include an in-depth study guide for personal and for uh, group use uh, at the end of each chapter and other resources that are available. Talk a little bit about how the book is, is laid out and how you hope people will use it uh, to gain the, the, the deepest understanding of the Song of Songs. Sure. Well, it has a chapter followed by an index, and then on my website there are video accompaniments and songs that go with it, too, to help individuals study. It's one thing for me to tell you what the song says. It's quite another for you to dig it out by yourself, which is what I hope individuals will do. And one of the things that is so interesting about the song is it's not an allegory where one thing represents one specific thing. For example, a kiss from the king is not just a word from scripture, but it can be the sense of his presence. It can be an answer to prayer. It's full of illusions. These are meant to ring bells of illusions. So in a small group, you will gain more as people say, well, well, this rang this bell for me, and you begin to see more. Uh, so I think it's really ideal for, for a group study, but certainly can be done individually. And I would say that though both men and women are the bride of Christ, it is easier for women to get in the bride's shoes. But it is for men, too. I was talking to Michael Card about this. I said, how do you identify with the metaphor of a bride? And he said, well, I do. He said, I think it's great that there's something that's good for women because there's so many things that are metaphors for men about war or about running or athletics, he said, but I I can get in those shoes because I know how I cherish my wife and how I want to take care of her, and it thrills me that God feels that way about me. Mm. So, 
Yes. You write about the gospel according to the Song of Songs. What do we learn about the gospel story uh, by reading this series of of poems, if you will, uh, that tell us something about God's love for us? Well, in the beginning, she is so unsure of his love, but he continually, throughout the book, is reassuring her of his love. You know, the gospel is amazing grace. It is amazing to think he loves us like this. We know ourselves, we know our failures, we know our darkness, and you see her articulating that. But the gospel says that we are washed and clean, and um, it really does strengthen your confidence that you are loved just as you are. And um, it also, I do believe the gospel saves us not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. There's something in knowing how loved you are that helps you overcome temptation and trial. Um, I wrote a book called Idol Lies that talks about how we, we tend to run to our heart idols. Um, for example, after... I was widowed fairly young, and when my husband died, I just kept running to the pantry. And idols can't be removed. They can only be replaced. I had to say, okay, now wait a minute. What need am I trying to fill? And um, run to the Lord instead and let him fill that. And when you see how loved you are, which the song shows you, you are willing to wait on him and let him come to you and kiss you and dance over you with singing, as the song says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have a section of the book that focuses on the fact that we are prone to wander and uh, that there is a wilderness kind of, of love. Uh, that, but there's also a purpose in that. There's a pain to it, but a purpose. To it. Talk a little bit about that wilderness experience where we tend to wander, but God's love has not abandoned us in that circumstance. But it's a, it's a type of oasis, as you also refer to it. Right, right talk about three stages of love that earthly marriages tend to go through, but we do in our relationship with the Lord. There's that wonderful first love, euphoric time, but then the honeymoon's over and our bridegroom may not be doing things the way we think he should do things, and that's the wilderness. And the wilderness is a testing time where we either back up and grumble like the Israelites did and many of their bodies were scattered in the desert, or we press into him, even though we don't understand what he's doing. And that's when we grow and mature, and uh, that's what happens in the song. She presses into him so that by the end of the song, we're told, who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So when the wilderness arrives, the, the key is to press in the enemy wants us to back up from God, and if we do that, then he's won. But if we press in, we will become fruitful and beautiful. And he speaks to us in the wilderness. In Hosea, we're told, I will lead you into the wilderness, but there I will speak tenderly to you, so that your door of acor will become a door of hope. We can really mature in the wilderness if we press in. What role does worship play in experiencing the love that God has for us? It's huge. And you see this in the song. When she is in the wilderness, she can't find him, and she's hunting for him, cannot find him. And then the chorus, which are called the Daughters of Jerusalem, say, what is it about your beloved that you are so eager to find him that you beseech us to help you find him? And she begins to describe what is beautiful about him. 
And that brings her out of the wilderness because she remembers why it is she fell in love with him in the first place. Um, one man said, we, we worshipped our way into this mess by worshipping the wrong things, and we can worship our way out. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, you end with the chapters with a title, The Best is Yet to Come, the song's final crescendo. Talk about mm-hmm. that. Really, the song is a picture of heaven if we knew what to pray for for heaven. In the fall, what happened is the earth became covered with thorns. But in the song, he says, My love, awake. The winter is over. The spring has come. The earth is covered with flowers. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. So that heaven will be the best of earth. In the fall, husband and wife became really at odds against each other, but here they are in love. There will be no sin in us. We will have sweet relationships. The fall called us to, the fall caused us to stop walking with God, but here again in the song, by the time she's coming out of the wilderness, she is walking with him in sweet communion. And he leaves, the song doesn't end with them walking happily ever after. He leaves and she calls for him to come back. It ends the same way the book of Revelation does, where it says the spirit and the bride say, come, and she says, return to me. So there are some real parallels about uh, the song with the rest of Scripture that begins to make you see this is no ordinary bridegroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is no ordinary bride. Well, I appreciate so much that you have uh, provided a tool that will help us appreciate this uh, this very important book of the Bible, the poetry of it, and how it relates to God revealing his love for us. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Georgie. Again, Dee Breston is the author of He Calls You, uh, Calls you Beautiful, Hearing the Voice of Jesus and the Song of Psalms. The book is published by Multnomah, and you can find more at her website, dbreston.com. Dot, and that's B-R-E-S-T-I-N dot com. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Adam Michelle. He focuses on tax policy and federal budgets. As a policy analyst in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute, we're going to talk about negotiators in Congress who are continuing to hammer out details of a tax reform package that's going to be presented to GOP lawmakers once they return from their August recess. I could sure use an August recess. We're also going to talk with Laura Keel. She's with Keel Mortgage. They're holding holding a uh, reverse mortgage seminar that's coming up this Saturday. We'll give you all the important details. It's not your grandmother's <laughs> reverse mortgage anymore. And if you'd like to separate the myths from the facts, uh, that will be the focus of that seminar. It's about an hour and a half long on uh, on Saturday this coming. Well, Republican um, Newt Bueller's campaign for Oregon governor received $500,000 from Nike co-founder Phil Knight. It is the biggest single state campaign contribution ever from the sports merchandise billionaire. Knight is 79. He's worth an estimated $26.6 billion, making him the 29th richest person in the world. Although I know some pastors that uh, I think could rival him in 
a lot of ways. That's according to Forbes magazine's estimate in June. Well, Knight gives his address as uh, Nike headquarters uh, in Beaverton. The contribution was given Monday. It was filed on Wednesday, according to the Oregon Secretary of State's campaign finance office. It's a big money bet that uh, by night that Bueller can break the GOP's string of nine straight losses in the race for governor. No Republican has won since Vicatia in 1982. Well, it's the second time Knight has bankrolled Bueller against Democrat Kate Brown. In the 2012 race for Secretary of State, Knight gave Bueller $50,000 in his unsuccessful bid to unseat Brown. Bueller, who announced his candidacy earlier this month, started uh, with a 10 to 1 disadvantage against incumbent Brown, who had a $1.4 million cash on hand against less than $130,000 for a Bueller. With Knight's contribution, Bueller has uh, roughly $700,000. Brown has $1.5 million. Bueller's campaign issued a statement uh, saying, I'm thrilled to have Phil Knight, one of Oregon's most influential citizens and innovative business leaders on our team. Phil Knight looks beyond narrow political labels, as do I. Uh, He believes Oregon's future is worth fighting for and it's uh, time for change, and so do I, end quote. Well, the spokesperson for Knight uh, couldn't be reached, but Knight and Nike have not commented on past political contributions either. Gene Atkins, who's the chair of the DNC, said Knight's money wouldn't sway the election. Phil Knight may be a great philanthropist, but his dollars won't buy a governorship, Atkins said. The people of Oregon won't be bought with a big donation from a wealthy guy on the sidelines. However, that $1.5 million that Brown already has is sure going to help. Bueller must first win the May 2018 Republican primary before he has a chance to face Brown. The governor officially has not declared her candidacy, but has been aggressively fundraising since winning last November's special election. Knight's uh, very large, very early contribution also creates a steep fundraising hill for any other Republicans considering the race. And though candidates can uh, create a campaign finance committee to raise and spend funds, no one can officially file uh, to run for office until the 7th of September. Candidates can file or withdraw as late as March of 2018. Well, Secretary of State Dennis Richardson, who in November became the first Republican to win statewide office in over a decade, has said he's not decided his future plans. Happy Valley Mayor Lori Chavez de Remer uh, has uh, created a campaign finance committee for governor, but has not yet announced if she will run. She received $50,000 from Knight in 2016 for her unsuccessful bid for the state house seat. Overall, Knight has spent about $300,000 on Republicans in legislative races that year. Knight has contributed to some Democrats in recent elections, but has saved his biggest amounts, with one exception, for the GOP. His previous largest total contribution was $400,000 to Republican Chris Dudley's unsuccessful bid for governor in 2010, but it was uh, split up into four contributions between March and October of that year. Dudley lost to Democrat John Kitzhaber by about 16,000 votes uh, out of 1.45 million that were cast. Well, Knight switched to Kitzhaber's campaign in 2014, giving what was his previous largest single donation of $250,000 to a Democrat. Kitzhaber had brokered a deal with legislative leaders for incentives to keep Beaverton-based Nike from moving operations out of state, you might recall. Well, Kitzhaber went on to defeat Richardson despite allegations of influence peddling. And with uh, federal prosecutors delving into his finances, Kitzhaber resigned the month following his January 2015 swearing-in. Brown then, Secretary of State became governor. No charges were ever filed against Kitzhaber. Well, Knight sat out the 2016 governor's race, uh, contributing only to candidates and 
uh, causes further down the ballot. In 2018, the election upcoming, it started out prime, uh, primarily rather as a race for money. Bueller and Brown each used the other as the theme of fundraising blitz over the past couple of weeks. Bueller quickly raised $75,000 after he announced, but Brown sent out an anti-Bueller email blast that brought in $110,000, capped by $75,000 from the Laborers Political League, a Washington, D.C.-based PAC. Well, Oregon is one of six states that have a no limit on any kind of state campaign contributions by individuals, corporations, groups, or political action committees. That's according to the National Conference of State Legislators. Uh, the others are Alabama, Missouri, Nebraska, Utah, and Virginia. There are 18 states that allow unlimited contributions from individuals, while others have limits as high as $50,000 in New York, for example, and $500 in Alaska. In Oregon, state courts have struck down any attempt to curb contributions, declaring curbs unconstitutional. According to the Federal Elections Commission, limits uh, limits uh, donations uh, to candidates from individuals to uh, $2,700 in recent Supreme Court rulings have opened the door for unlimited soft money uh, through groups that are officially unaffiliated with a candidate. So the race is on, um, at least the race for money. Well, the removal of Confederate statues around the United States has prompted a fiery debate. On one side, many argue that the statues represent history and should be left where they are, lest we forget the significance of the era in which they were erected. On the flip side, some argue that the statues are racist and have no place in modern society. But why are proponents of the latter viewpoint only upset about certain statues and not others? Why, for example, is the bust of uh, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger in the Smithsonian Museum not one of the statues? progressives are freaking out about. Well, as a Washington Times article uh, from earlier this year pointed out, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood on racism and the belief in protecting society from the unfit. And that wasn't just those who were genetically unfit, but those who were African-American or any other minority that she listed in her eugenics Screed. We do not want uh, word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, she wrote in one 1939 letter to a friend. Interestingly enough, 200,000 African-American babies are aborted every year here in the United States. So Margaret Sanger would be quite pleased, despite the protestations of those who work with Planned Parenthood today, saying that they have nothing to do with those viewpoints. A look at the numbers proves that Sanger's dream for Planned Parenthood has been realized, even exceeded. Currently, Planned Parenthood kills more African-American people than all other causes of death combined. Now, you think about that for a moment. The founder of Planned Parenthood was racist in her ambitions. Her organization today continues to exterminate black babies at alarming rates, and she receives, the organization at least, receives um, uh, federal funding. Her legacy is not like that of Robert E. Lee, more than a century removed. Rather, it lives on and continues to affect millions of lives today and tomorrow and the day after that. Yet no, well, no protesters seem to be rushing into the Smithsonian to violently tear down the bust of Margaret Sanger, as they did with the Confederate statue in North Carolina on Monday. In fact, the only significant mention of a call for Sanger's bust to be removed dates back to 2015, when a group of African-American pastors who weren't carrying signs or torches or anything wrote a letter to the Smithsonian Museum. Perhaps the gallery is unaware that Miss Sanger supported black eugenics, a racist attitude toward black and other minority babies, an elitist attitude toward those she regarded as the feeble-minded. Speaking at a rally of Ku Klux Klan women and communications with Hitler sympathizers, the letter reads, The obvious incongruity is staggering. And isn't it up next? We're going to talk with Adam Michelle. We're going to talk about uh, the effort to um, 
have a tax reform package in Congress sometime next month. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, negotiators are continuing to hammer out details of a tax reform package that's going to be presented to GOP lawmakers once they return from their August recess after Labor Day. Well, Americans pay federal corporate income tax rate of 35 percent. It's one of the highest in the world. And uh, here to talk with us about what's likely to uh, be presented when they return from their uh, recess is Adam Michelle. He focuses on tax policy and federal budget as a policy analyst in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. There seems to be a lot of skepticism about whether or not uh, lawmakers on the GOP side returning from recess are going to be successful with their efforts at reforming our taxes in the wake of the failure, so far anyway, of dealing with uh, Obamacare and its repeal and replace. Meant. Yeah. The, so what, I think what's really important to keep in mind and to for uh, for to make sure legislators legislators know is how important tax reform is to the average American. This the tax reform plans that are out there could grow the economy by ten percent over over ten years. That's more than a seven percent increase in in wages for the average American. If you're making fifty thousand dollars a year, that's an additional four thousand dollars in your pocket uh, every year, and that that's significant for for the for the average American and and for for all Americans. Oh, absolutely. So we don't. We should always start with that, with a rem- reminding legislators how important this is for everyone. Well, give us some perspective on what a federal corporate income tax rate of 35% means, because for the average person who's not an entrepreneur, it may be difficult to recognize uh, how that impacts them directly. So if they fail uh, to pass tax reform, uh, give us some perspective on the weight that we bear. So it's even worse than 35%. When you take in the average state rates, corporations in the United States can pay Upwards of forty percent, uh, which is, as you mentioned, the highest uh, one of the highest rates in the world. And what this does is it drives businesses and investment overseas to other countries, making America less competitive, making it harder for businesses to hire here in the United States, invest here in the United States, and ultimately makes it harder for them to raise wages for for all for all of the people they employ across America. So lowering the corporate income tax rate is really a tax cut for for every American. It allows the economy to expand. It allows wages to go up. Uh, and it's uh, and it's currently just an incredible burden on the economy. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are Republicans um, are they united on this subject? I know with with health care, the uh, railing against Obamacare gave the impression that there was an alternative waiting in the wings. It, are the Republicans better prepared this time around in terms of tax reform? And are they united in their approach? And are there Democrats who are likely to sign on, recognizing the burden that their supporters uh, bear as well? I think we're in a much better place than we were on health uh, healthcare reform. The there's there are proposals out there that have pretty broad support. The that proposal that the House um, Ways and Means Committee put out that that the president uh, largely buys into. They they put out joint statements. The president, the House, and the Senate laying out principles that they all agree on. So there is a lot of uh, a lot of agreement that they can move forward on when they get back in September. 
As far as reaching across the aisle, it certainly should be an issue. Uh, tax reform should be an issue that everyone can get on board with. Is, tax reform is really a jobs bill, and mm-hmm. that's, the way, that's the way it should be thought of, um, but to be determined uh, to see how many Democrats get on board. Now, as you pointed out, they're going to be back after the uh, Labor Day, uh, after Labor Day, uh, the end of their August recess. What happens at that point? I know they have the debt ceiling to deal with. What might we expect when they return? So I think in about like mid-September, we're hearing there should be additional details being put out by either Congress or the administration on additional things that they all agree on that they're going to move forward with. And then they've said that tax reform is going to go through the normal legislative process. So it's not going to be done behind closed doors like a lot of things have been happening. It's going to go through the normal committee process, and hopefully all, all the parties will be able to have their voice heard, and we'll sort of see it progress through the, the normal order process. Are you optimistic, and who are the leaders in this effort? I am optimistic. The uh, um, Chairman Brady, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, is committed to tax reform. As I said, he's put out these uh, a pretty comprehensive plan and has been working towards that. Speaker Paul Ryan had Chairman Brady's job before Chairman Brady did as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, so he's also has gotten his hands dirty and really understands uh, tax reform. And then the president also has been out there uh, championing, championing lowering the corporate tax rate and other simplifications. So there's there's hopefully a lot of momentum moving us in the right direction. Well, I heard, certainly hope that's the case. Now, my understanding is a group of, uh, of lawmakers met at the Republican Library or somewhere on that compound today or uh, recently uh, in order to kind of uh, symbolically suggest that we are prepared, we are preparing to take this on. Um, Is that an accurate uh, report? And what do you think um, uh, this message is supposed to be if, if in fact it's correct? Yeah, so that you're you're correct. They, I think they met at the Reagan Library, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and that's a sort of an homage to the last time, 30 years ago, that we truly updated our our tax code in the night in the 1980s under Reagan. And that, so yeah, I think it's a show that they are they're on the same page, and they all hope to be moving towards true comprehensive tax reform, but also tax cuts for for all America for Americans across the board. And that's that's where the folks should stay, and that's. That's how we get the economy moving again. Well, we'll certainly watch and listen very carefully over the next few weeks and hope that your optimism is not misplaced. I appreciate (laughs) so much your taking the time to talk with us. Certainly. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Thank you. Again, uh, Adam Michelle uh, focuses on tax policy and federal budgets uh, as a policy analyst at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation. And I'm hoping that his optimism is not misplaced. There have been many administrations, many uh, congresses uh, returning from a break uh, saying that this is a priority for them, everyone acknowledging it needs to be done, but uh, it never really coming to fruition with the exception of 30 years ago for those of us who were around at that time. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I, I, um, I hope, uh, in fact, that, uh, that this is, in fact, the course that they take. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with a, uh, an advertiser here on KPDQ. Uh, Laura Keel is with Keel Mortgage, and they are host, hosting rather a seminar to help you understand some of the new rules uh, and to clarify fact from fiction regarding reverse mortgages. They have a seminar coming up coming up rather on Saturday, August the 19th. She's going to join us to talk all about that. She's the co-founder along with her husband of uh, Keel Mortgage that functions here in the Pacific 
uh, Northwest. So she'll be joining us uh, a bit later in the program. Also, we want to let you know uh, we have a, a traffic update regarding the eclipse. And apparently in central Oregon and in eastern Oregon, it's much worse than uh, we can anticipate here. But we'll bring you up to date as we have pretty much every day leading up to uh, the uh, eclipse on Monday the 21st. I know lots of people are starting to buy up a lot of gas and food in anticipation of uh, who knows what's going to happen. I, I tend to think, uh, particularly in our area, that it might be a bit overkill, but we sort of specialize in that uh, these days. If something has happened, it's got to be more dramatic than it actually was. If something's about to happen, it, there have to be uh, facets to it that are uh, a little bit frightening. We tried to address some of the uh, the, the myths uh, and rumors yesterday, but, you know, they persist. So anyway, we'll get into all of that later in the program as well. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I want to take an opportunity to introduce you to one of our new partners here on KPDQ, an advertiser, Keel Mortgage, and to let you know that they are hosting a reverse mortgage seminar. Now, that seminar is going to help you move from what you think you know about reverse mortgage to finding out what's actually true, learning the facts about the FHA reverse mortgage. You can learn how to use some of the equity in your home, for example, to never make a monthly mortgage payment again, and even purchase a new home with a reverse mortgage. Well, if you have questions about that, well, this is a great opportunity for you to get those answers. Laura Keel is the co-founder of Keel Mortgage, along with her husband in 1996. She's been the familiar public voice that's been heard by millions on the airwaves. She's a fearless fighter and advocate for consumers, providing exceptional customer service and loan products to families in the Pacific Northwest. And she, along with uh, her friend Ted Butler, a reverse mortgage expert, are going to be the presenters at the Reverse Mortgage Seminar coming up this Saturday, and we'll give you all the important details in just a moment. Laura Keel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, how exciting. I'm very, very happy to be talking with you. You know, you it, it's so interesting because people think they know about reverse mortgages, and maybe they've heard something from years ago, but few of us really understand what's true about them today that may not have been true in the past. How mistaken might we be? You might be completely wrong. I'm talking just in a major, major way. And it's kind of like maybe you've been in this, in this uh, eclipse. <laughs> 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 the real knowledge has been really blacked out. And we, we want to see that sunlight emerge because it's, uh, it's so important. Then the reverse mortgage was completely redesigned between 2010 and 2015. It took five years. It took a couple of years to redesign it five years to implement it. So what we have today is uh, is vastly different than what had happened in the past. And it's it's just uh, it's such an important piece of your whole um, wealth in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, most people the most important piece of, of the most important asset is their home. And so uh, the reverse reverse mortgages give you safe ways that are really powerful to utilize that uh, a portion of your equity for your retirement planning and your retirement portfolio. Now, and, I, don't, um, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners know what a reverse mortgage is. So first of all, right. let's just define that so that uh, those who are thinking, hey, this might be something that we could benefit from, will know precisely what we're referring to. Right. So a reverse mortgage is, a, is a, an FHA-approved product. Uh, it is uh, backed by the federal government. It's insured by FHA. And it allows you to access a portion of the equity of the house 
that you have earned over the years. You have to be age 62 or older to access it. You can have a younger spouse, so if it's a married couple, one of you can be less than 62. But other than, other than that, it's a special club just for those of us that are over <laughs> age 62. And it allows us to access this equity uh, and do many things with it. There are many possibilities. You can eliminate your monthly mortgage payment. You still have to pay your taxes and insurance. You can create a monthly income for yourself. Or one of the most exciting features is you can create a growing line of credit. And right now that line of credit is growing in value at 5.7%, and that's tax-free and tax-exempt. Boy, that's incredible. Yeah, if you have a $200,000 line of credit and you let it sit there for, you know, 10 years, many people have an emergency $200,000 line of credit, but in 10 years it's still $200,000. Your reverse mortgage line of credit would be $400,000 if you just let it sit there and grow. So it's it's absolutely amazing, and um, and then then you can take that out tax free and tax exempt, and use it for your you know you can use it to make improvements to your home. You can use it to improve your life. You can take your family on a trip if that's what you want to do. It's your own money, and this and the, then you and your family own the home just like you always did. So that was one of the things yes. in the past. People thought they lost their home, and that just in today's reverse mortgage, there are just there are many 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 protections so that that doesn't happen. Now, my guess is lots of our listeners today have lots of misconceptions about what a reverse mortgage is. And I want to encourage those of you who are listening who have a a healthy curiosity. You have an opportunity to learn more at the reverse mortgage seminar that's coming up this Saturday, one o'clock. It's going to be an hour and a half and all of your questions will be answered. Uh, It's going to be at the Jansen Beach Bar and Grill on Hayden Island Drive here in Portland. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, take the guesswork out of considering this as an option for you and your family and find out uh, what the facts are. Now, Ted Butler is going to be presenting along with you. Give us some idea of what what we might expect at the Reverse Mortgage Seminar this Saturday. Okay, well, the first thing is, we're really nice. We're going to give you hugs. We're not going to sell you anything. So, so don't bring your checkbook. Don't, you know, just come with an open heart and an open mind, and we're just going to give you information. That is all. Uh, We just want you to have the facts and and all the facts and nothing more than that. So this is not a pressure sales thing. This is truly, truly an educational opportunity. Um, I've been teaching uh, in the state of Washington for many, many years on this, and Ted Butler has been a reverse mortgage specialist for 16 years. So we just uh, have a wealth of knowledge. We're going to be able to answer any of your questions that come to mind. And so if you've just like you said, if you've had curiosity or interest or you, you know, you just think it's completely awful and you want to come to find out why, why would we even do a seminar, yeah, that's fine too. You know, we just want to open up the dialogue of what a reverse mortgage is and how it can be used for you. Yeah. And then, you know, people know, people know when after they get the real facts, they know if they have interest in it or not. Yeah. It's real clear. Yeah. There's no mystery. If you have interest or not, once you once you see the real information, and it may be something that is useful down the road, if not today. Now, it, oh, do you have to have a lot a, of people plan ahead? Yes. Do you have to have a certain amount of equity in your home in order to be eligible for a reverse mortgage? Yes. yes. And I always tell people to start at about fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So if you have about fifty percent equity in your house, um, we can probably do something. If you know, and it's it's birth date dependent, so I can't really say you know right. Not exactly that. But, you know, if you're a little older, you're going to be able to get more. If you're a little younger, you know, if you've got a younger spouse, 
you know, you're going to be able to get a little bit less. But no matter what, that's a good starting point. Are you finding that uh, more and more people are turning to reverse mortgage to help as part of their retirement planning and their portfolio for, for the longevity that we are experiencing today that we may not have anticipated some years ago? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's for people, of, people, if you have a need, if you have a financial need, a reverse mortgage is wonderful. If you're really, really wealthy and you own your home free and clear and you have other properties you own free and clear and you have a million dollars in cash, a reverse mortgage is still something you want to look at because of that growing line of credit. It's a financial tool that you cannot access any other way. And there's no other financial management tool that has the protections that that has. So we have people from every income possible that are doing reverse mortgages today, where a few years ago, nobody, it was only people of need that would do a reverse mortgage. Well, and now it's become such a, pop, such a, such a powerful financial opportunity with so, many, mm-hmm. with so much flexibility in it that everybody's looking at it. And mm-hmm. you can buy your final retirement home with it. It's just amazing. It's eye-opening and amazing what, what we're able to do. Well, we're just giving our listeners a bit of a, a taste of what they can expect at the reverse mortgage seminar because there's so much more that's available to you and it's always a good idea to find out what are my options is this something that I could benefit from today or perhaps at some point down the future if you're thinking about your parents or someone you care Mm -hmm. about this is a great opportunity to find out what might benefit them as well again the reverse mortgage seminar is is this Saturday August the 19th 1 o'clock p.m. it's an hour and a half so who doesn't have an hour and a half uh, to learn this kind of great information And it's going to be at the Jansen Beach Bar and Grill on Hayden Island here in Portland. Now, if folks want to come, do they need to let you know ahead of time that they're coming? Well, you know, we do have a, you can register on our website, which is keelmortgage.com. But honestly, we're we're preparing to have people come. And we even think people might be coming who are coming to the eclipse that would (laughs) have some time just to Mm -hmm. wait around. Mm -hmm. And they've wanted the information and never known where to go and get it. So we've actually, we have room for you if you come and just, you know, we'd just love to have you there. Okay. So, so you're free to, to walk in, but you can also yeah. go to the website, uh, Kiel Mortgage, and that's K-I-E-L Mortgage.com. Right. And we love to know if people can register ahead of time. That's great. But um, we're also... Uh, planning for walk-ins this time. Okay, okay, great. And I would encourage folks to, uh, to to log on and just say, hey, we're planning on coming. We're coming there. We're going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and expect a hug when they arrive. <laughs> well, Laura, we are so delighted to have you part of the KPDQ family and for this great opportunity for, uh, for us, for KPDQ listeners, to learn more about the 21st century version of reverse mortgage that I think many will be surprised to learn is way better than what they, they expected. Absolutely. They're going to be pleasantly surprised and a little bit shocked. Well, come uh, prepared to be pleasantly surprised and a little bit shocked. (laughs) Hey, Laura Keel, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. You have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, uh, that reverse mortgage seminar is 1 o'clock p.m. this Saturday at the Jansen Beach Bar and Grill on Hayden Island Drive here in Portland. And they'd ask that you would uh, uh, let them know you're coming. You can register. There's no cost. You just come and you're going to learn what you need to know about uh, reverse mortgages today, the FHA reverse mortgage. And that website is keelmortgage.com, K-I-E-L mortgage.com. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, the eclipse is all the rage these days, and there's lots going on, but it could be worse if you live here in the Portland metro area or here along the I-5 corridor. Apparently, eclipse traffic is a nightmare in central and eastern Oregon, so it could be worse when we start to complain about the uh, uh, the visitors who will slow our commute. Uh, despite the uh, the total solar eclipse still being days away, heavy traffic in central and eastern Oregon started midday Wednesday, and it's continued, of course, today. This is just the beginning, they tell us. About a million people are projected to visit the state of Oregon to see the total solar eclipse on Monday. And yes, it's this Monday. The Deschutes County Sheriff's Office expects um, about 30,000 people to arrive in central Oregon today, then 37,000 on Friday, 44,000 on Saturday, and 43,000 on Sunday. Wow. Well, the vast majority of these people are expected to leave Monday afternoon and Tuesday, so they're sort of staggering their exit. In Madras, for example, traffic was uh, picking up on Thursday, but so far there were no traffic jams. The town of about 6,000 is considered one of the best viewing locations in the nation, and it's expecting at least 100,000 people uh, to view the eclipse from that location to pass through over the next uh, few days. Prineville police reported today that... um, uh, traffic is headed uh, to uh, the Symbiosis Eclipse Festival. It remains clogged from east of Prineville to the event uh, in the Ochaco National Forest on uh, on Thursday. Traffic was uh, backed up for about 15 miles, so not so bad yet. But Oregon State uh, Police tweeted uh, that that was uh, beginning to be a bit of a problem. Police and the Oregon Department of Transportation rerouted festival traffic in Prineville due to the uh, standstill on Highway 26. They plan to send people to uh, another route uh, to the big summit until Highway 26 is no longer blocked. 30,000 people are expected to attend the five-day festival that starts on Thursday. So I guess that's a fun way to do it. You're just uh, having fun until the eclipse comes. Everything comes to a standstill for a few minutes. It passes and the festival either continues or draws to a screeching halt. Uh, Prineville changed its uh, traffic lights as well to favor east-west traffic during the eclipse and anticipating rather the large crowds that are coming. The Ochaco um, National Forest on Thursday tweeted a video of traffic at a standstill on Highway 26 near the uh, uh, the uh, reservoir east of Prineville. Event coordinators are working uh, pretty fast to get people into the event. They're going to work all night and into tomorrow to uh, to make that happen. And they're encouraging people to be patient if that's where they are uh, headed. In eastern Oregon, uh, trip check showed highway traffic um, uh, Thursday morning on Highway 395 from um well, the, the major areas there, traffic was also pretty heavy in the Burns area on the 395, which is their main thoroughfare around John Day uh, and on Highway 26. For months, ODOT has uh, warned that the eclipse would lead to the biggest traffic event in Oregon. Uh, they recommend travelers leave early, be patient and be prepared and, you know, make sure you have a little snack in the car and some water and, you know, emergency Y2K uh, supplies, it sounds to me. Well, the father of Natalie Holloway, you may remember this uh, young girl. It's been 12 years ago. She was the American woman who vanished there, uh, revealed today that uh, he and an investigator made a shocking discovery behind a house. They have found human remains. Now, that was 12 years ago. She was on a graduation trip with some of her peers. Dave Holloway and investigator T.J. Ward uh, said on NBC Today that the the uh, that following a renewed 18 month probe, the remains will be DNA tested to see if they are in fact a match 
uh, with the Alabama 18-year-old who disappeared while she was on a graduation trip in 2005. The DNA test will uh, take several weeks to a month, um, but that will be definitive. Um, no one has ever been charged in her disappearance. Joran Vandersloot, a Dutch uh, man has been, uh, who was last seen with her outside a bar, uh, is serving a 28-year sentence in a Peru jail for killing a business student, um, a murder that came five years to the day after Natalie's disappearance. Natalie's father said an informant who lived with a friend of Vandersloot gave a tip uh, which led them to the remains. Uh, he had information that uh, he took us to a spot where remains were found, and we took those remains and had uh, had them tested, Holloway said, again, speaking on today. We've chased a lot of leads, and this one is by far the most credible uh, that they've seen in the last 12 years. And as a father, that has to have been one of the most difficult things he's ever done. Uh, also one of the most gratifying things in that uh, if this is, in fact, his daughter, uh, he can lay her to rest, and the mystery will ultimately be solved, at least in part. Uh, Ward and Dave Holloway are uh, taking part in a new TV series, The Disappearance of Natalie Holloway, which premieres this weekend on the Oxygen Network. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to be on television surrounding all of this, but it may help to underwrite uh, the tremendous costs of trying to discover what happened to his daughter. We also learned today that Portland City Commissioner Nick Fish has been diagnosed with stomach cancer. He announced the diagnosis uh, this morning in a press release saying to my family, friends and co-workers, I have some bad news to share with you. I've been diagnosed with cancer over the past few months. I experienced weight loss, poor appetite, indigestion and abdominal pain. A recent CT scan uh, rang a number of alarm bells. A follow up laparoscopy this week confirmed our worst fears. And he has uh, uh, cancer in his uh, abdomen, abdomen rather. I am in good hands at OHSU Knight Cancer Institute, he said. My doctors have prescribed regular outpatient chemotherapy treatments. The medicine will weaken my immune system, but should not prevent me from continuing to serve on the city council. This is the biggest challenge I have ever faced. I intend to uh, fight this disease with every fiber of my body. I am incredibly grateful to my family for their love and support. Please keep us in your prayers. And I wanted to focus on the latter part of that statement. Please keep us in your prayers. Uh, he is a Portland City Commissioner, and he has a political track record, and you may uh, know something about how he's uh, voted on issues you care about, up or down. You may have an opinion about uh, whether or not he is representing your interests well or poorly. Um, but he has asked that uh, we would pray for him, all of us in the city of Portland. And I wanted to extend an appeal, especially to uh, the body of Christ, that we would take that seriously. And I would encourage you, regardless of your political priorities, uh, to send a note to uh, Portland Commissioner Nick Fish. You can just send it to uh, Portland City Hall, and I'm certain they'll get that to him. Uh, to let him know that, yes, the church in Portland is praying for you. Uh, this is indeed a, a significant battle that he faces. I know some of you are familiar with that battle. You have either experienced it yourself or walked through it with loved ones. In any case, this is a public servant uh, for whom the scripture says we are to pray regularly. He's a person in authority. And we have an opportunity at his request to remember him and his family in prayer. And I would just encourage all of us to go beyond that, uh, which is the most we can do. I mean, I'm not undermining that, but to let him know that we are praying by sending him a note, a card, an email, uh, whatever you can do to say, yes, I am a, I'm a, a Christian in this Portland area, and I want you to know that me, my church, my family, whatever is true, 
Uh, we are praying for you. Nick Fish is 58. He's been a city commissioner since 2008. He's a Harvard and Northeastern University graduate, a former civil rights lawyer. He headed to Portland's Housing Bureau in Portland Parks of uh, Recreation for four years. He currently oversees the Portland Water Bureau and the Bureau of Environmental Services. He's lived in Portland since 1996. So he's a relative newcomer. In two, uh, 2014, rather, he easily won re-election during the primary election with 73% of the vote. So in terms of those who uh, re-elected him, he was very popular. But I would set all of that aside. We all have views on uh, political issues. There's a man in the fight of his life. He has served this city, uh, and he has asked that uh, we would pray for him. Keep us in your prayers, is what the uh, what the note said, and I take that seriously. It's a tremendous opportunity uh, to minister to that family uh, through prayer and then encouraging notes, emails, letters, whatever you uh, you decide to do. Again, Nick Fish, uh, Portland City Commissioner, diagnosed with stomach cancer. And again, that's a battle that is uh, very difficult. He intends to continue uh, working, uh, but that will be difficult. And so I, I hope you will pray for him as he has asked. Well, on a lighter note, tomorrow being Friday, we're going to take that opportunity to well look at the lighter side of the news. And while this has been a very difficult week in many ways, I mean, there's been one major issue that um, has been the focus of much of uh, mainstream media. Uh, and while there are important issues, um, my fear is they haven't really focused on the core issues. They focused on some of the uh, questions that have uh, little impact on how we move forward. Uh, all of that said, we have the event that took place, the, the terror uh, attack in Barcelona. We are living in very dangerous times. There are serious issues surrounding us, and, um, you know, we recognize all of that. And on Monday, we'll return to those serious issues and take a sober look at them. On the other hand, on Friday, we step away from them, unless there's breaking news, and we certainly will break in if that's the case. We try to lighten up, and so if you are in the mood, uh, let me encourage you to join us on Friday for just that. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.